0: One of the things that thrill me most than other things on this planet is when I hear such testimonies from believers. When one of our members told me this week of a situation the individual was involved in, and uh, he said, in the midst of faith, everything uh, this individual said the person remembered. It what we studied, and apply them. And before this individual could say, I mean, go show his father. When I heard that, I said, great. And the person went on to say, yeah, I know it works. You just apply what, you, what, you, what we studied. I said, yes, that's why I label, because I know it is true. Whether people believe it or not, they don't shake me. I know it is true, and if you believe it, you live it. You cannot go wrong. That much we know. Let's pray. I'm also eternal and everlasting Father, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Awesome, gracious, powerful, loving, caring, omnipotent God, eminent and transcendent God. You are our God. You are a gracious one. So we come to you this morning thanking you for who you are, for what you do. We recognize that we do not deserve not one thing from you, but because your Son, Jesus Christ, offered Himself on our behalf, you continue to be gracious to us. So we are thankful that you have given us this high privilege to assemble together, to worship you, and study a portion of your word. We are aware that the human mind is incapable of understanding anything that is spiritual. So we request that God the Holy Spirit, the perfect communicator, will enable us to hear precisely what you have for us. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen. We move to First Corinthians chapter twelve, verses fourteen through nineteen. Where we of course will be dealing with focus on members of the Church of Christ. Focus on members of the church of Christ. He reads, verse 14 reads, Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. It will not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. It will not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But, in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where with the body, be. And recall, the overall message of this section of 1 Corinthians, chapter twelve, verses twelve through twenty-six, is unity and diversity are essential in the body of Christ. That is the Church of Christ. Now, this message we stated places some responsibilities on you as a believer in Christ. Now we consider the first responsibility as given in the subsection of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 12 and 13 which is that you should recognize the unity and the diversity in the church of Christ. Now in keeping with this responsibility, we stated that you should not expect uniformity in the, in the body of Christ, whether you measure uh, people by their ethnicity or by their social standing. Now, God has created diversity in the body of Christ because each believer has been uniquely placed in the church of Christ to carry out a unique function that is in the church fulfilling his function on this planet. Therefore, do not as a believer, do not try to eradicate diversity. Now cherish it with focus on the unity that exists in the body of Christ. So we proceed to consider the second responsibility of the believer based on this subsection of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 through 19. The second responsibility you have. Regarding the message, the overall message, which is unity and diversity, are essential in the body of uh, Christ, that is the Church of Christ. This second responsibility is that you should focus on facts stated about members of the Church of Christ. There are certain facts in this section that we're going to be studying that are really concern about members of the body of Christ. Your responsibility is to focus on these facts, learn them, understand them, and of course apply them. So to this end, there are at least five facts you should consider to help you recognize the importance of diversity and unity in the body of Christ. A first fact to help you understand the importance of unity and diversity in the body of Christ, is that the Church of Christ consists of several members. Now that's That's obvious, yes. But it's something that you need to remember. Now this fact is derived from the analogy of Apostle Paul in this 1 Corinthians 12 verse 4. Look at that verse. Now... The body is not made of one part, but of many. That's why we get that simple fact. Now verse 4, though, is an emphatic explanation, very emphatic explanation of the fact that there is unity and diversity in the church of Christ. Although the apostle use the analogy of human body. When he presented this first fact, it may not really be that easy to recognize that verse 14 is an emphatic explanation of the unity in diversity of the Church of Christ because of uh, the way the NIV and uh, many of our English versions handle the uh, beginning part of verse 14 with the word now. They handle it, some of them translate with the word now. So, uh, when we say something emphatic, you, you know, if you're reading an article or something, once you see something underlined, you focus. Or if you see something with bold these days, different types, you focus on whatever that is. They don't have those things in the Greek and Hebrew. But they have things that help us to know that. So, what I'm saying is, what we have in verse 14 means focus. So now it's emphatic. It's an explanation, but it is an emphatic one. And so, the way to understand that is one of those things that uh, I try to explain you know, sometimes, uh, use an engineering analogy. Uh, we will, for many years, you know, the issue was you, re- you hear about engineering technology uh, in many schools and so forth, and you have engineering, you have engineering, and the issue is always had what's really the difference, and not really personalities were well understood. It, I say it all comes b- down to this: the engineer is showing the fundamental of how you derive the formula you use in design. The, te- the person with technology degree. You just told oh, this is the formula, one, two, three, this is the formula, use it. So you don't really know how that come up, came about. So if you run, some, run into something outside that normal range of application of the formula, since you don't know how to derive it from the false principle, you don't know what to do. In the same way with studying the Bible. If I just come down now and just say, okay, now I made a statement, it's an emphatic explanation. Let's move on. How do you know I'm sure? I mean, how, how can you believe me? Now, it's hard even when I explain it in detail. Some of you still don't believe me. Now, can you imagine when I just say, okay, this is it, and go. And some of you say, well, he's shoving it into a, a throat to swallow. No, I'm not doing that. So, that's one of the reasons we go through the lengthy way we go to explain things. So, this is one of those things that I will have to explain in detail because of that word now. I will go in detail to explain it. Now others began the verse either with the word for as you find in the English standard version or indeed as you find in the new Revised standard version. But the Greek begins with two Greek conjunctions together. Now the first is a Greek conjunction kaya, that is often translated and in our English versions, as reflected in the verse uh, in the New Jerusalem Bible, that began this verse with the word and. That's how they began uh, this uh, verse 14 in the New Jerusalem Bible. However, this Greek conjunction has several other usages. For example, it may be used to introduce a result that comes from What precedes, and so maybe translated something like and then or and so. Now, it may be used to emphasize a fact as surprising or unexpected or noteworthy with the meaning and yet or and in spite of that, or it can even mean nevertheless. Of course, it could be used simply for emphasis with the meaning even, even. Now, it may be used to mark an explanation, so that what follows uh, goes before it, explaining what uh, went before it, so in that case, leading to the translation, that is, or namely, that is, you made a statement, now you want to explain it further. Now, the second Greek conjunction used to begin verse 14 uh, is a word, gar, just G-A-R, that has, has several usages. For example, it can be used as a marker of inference with the meaning so, or then, by all means. Or it can be used simply as a marker of cause or reason for something, in which case it may be translated for or simply because. Now it can be used as a marker of clarification or explanation, so that it may be translated for or You see, you see. Now, the problem we face is how to interpret the combination of the two conjunctions that begin in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. How do we interpret it to translate it? Now, the combination of the two conjunctions, either at the beginning of a verse in the Greek or At the beginning of a clause, within a verse, is used 76 times in the Greek New Testament. That combination occurs 76 times in the Greek New Testament. And in the process of studying, I have to look at those 76 times. So you see what what it takes to study. It's not just, you know, just uh, read through it and come out here and make up something. No. So I have to look at those 76 uh, occurrences of this Greek combination. Now the combination of the two Greek uh, conjunction have been handled in the NIV in four general ways. Look, uh, by looking at the 76 usages, that's what I, dis- uh, I discovered that is being used about four general ways. First, the combination is translated only as if the focus of the verse or sentence that are associated with it it is really only on an explanation, so that the combination is simply translated for, as it is used in the translation of the combination of this conjunction where the centurion that requested healing of his servant for Jesus Christ to heal his servant did not really want Jesus to come to his house, but to speak his word, since he, the centurion, understood the concept of authority and believed that Jesus has authority over sickness. And so, and of course, over demons. All he wants, he believes, speak, and that's all he needs. This is how this combination is used in Matthew chapter 8, verse 9. Matthew chapter 8, verse 9. Now here, I'm saying that in, this is a case where the combination is just translated as if the focus of the verse is, uh, is simply on explanation, without translating both of them. For, it is, yeah, for I myself, am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, "Do this," and he does it. Now, literally, though, the combination of the Greek conjunction used in the beginning of this verse should read something like this: "For also." But that's not what we have. We read "For also." In that way, we have translated both "For also." But the word also that will emphasize some emphasis is removed, and only the word for that indicates explanation. So it is this um, uh, translation of rendering the combined conjunction as if if the focus is on explanation of what follows or what preceded that is reflected where Apostle Paul provides, of course, an explanation of the basis of the unity in the body of Christ that we studied last week. And that is 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13. Look at that verse 13. We studied last week. We didn't focus at that time at that point because uh, God the Holy Spirit was moving us to something. Anyway, here it says, for we are who were all baptized by one spirit into one body whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free and we were all given the one spirit to drink now again, here we will say for indeed or for we also either way but it's, in this case the focus is simply on the explanation of the unity so that's the first way the combination has been handled in the NIV they just translate it as you are focusing on, on one thing in this case, explanation second The combination of the two Greek words, or conjunction, is translated as if the focus is only on emphasis. As the combination is translated where Apostle Paul described the health status of Epipharidatus in Philippians chapter 2, verse 27. Philippians chapter 2, verse 27 where our combination is used but it is translated as if the focus is only on emphasis and ignoring the other uh, part of the conjunction. Here it is read, I mean reads in Philippians 2, verse 27 Indeed, he was ill. He of course was referring to Ep- Epaphroditus. He said he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on, on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. So here, the literal Greek really uh, begins with the word, the two combinations, so that really, literally, the Greek begins this word. For indeed, that's the way it begins in the Greek, literally, for indeed. But but that was not the case in this uh, uh, verse in the NIV of uh, Philippians that we're looking at. Now it seems that the Greek conjunction that is often translated and is translated indeed, while the one that may mean for is really not translated at all in this verse. Now, it is in the same sense... Of emphasis that the combination is translated in fact in a passage where Apostle Paul reminded the Thessalonians one of the things he taught them regarding persecution that believers face that we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter three verse four. This is one of those things that, uh, of course, many times it all depends on where we are. We focus on one thing more than others. Those, of, if you ever get those magazines or report of Voice of martyrs, you know that most of the pastors, once they get saved, the first, the thing that they focus on is persecution. That's what I keep telling them: you'll be persecuted. We don't do that here because for the most part we think we're not persecuted But the truth of the matter is we are, except that uh, as I've said many times, the reason it looks like we're not being persecuted is we're not being truthful to the faith. We're full of compromises. So with that, no one persecutes us. Anyway, here yeah, this is what the apostle tells them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you That we will be persecuted. That is an essential part of being a Christian. Persecution. You can't escape it. So if you are not being persecuted, you better ask yourself. Am I actually living the Christian life? And it turned out that way. As you well know. He told him. Once you turn to faith in Christ, get ready. You're going to be persecuted. Now today, you can tell many believers. If you're serious with the word get ready for persecution, from your members of your family, not people outside yet, internally. Because they're the first one that's going to attack you. Now literally though, from the Greek, the beginning of this passage, should read something like this, for indeed, to take care of those two combination Four, indeed. But that's not, you know, they just chose one emphasis on uh, I mean, the idea of emphasis. So that's the second way. The third way is that the combination of the two Greek words is untranslated. They just don't translate it. Now this is the way the translators of the NIV handled this: the combination of the two conjunctions In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. Hebrews Hebrews. chapter 10, verse 34. Again, it's dealing with persecution, part of the Christian faith. This it is you sympathize with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Of course, again, uh, because of where we live, we don't, this, some of this doesn't make sense to us, really. But there are many parts of the world today if you become a Christian you run out of your community, your land is written is sold. And I'm not making this up. I mean, like I said, if you get that voice of matter, you see reports upon reports upon reports of that taking place. Just because you're a Christian. You say, no, you no longer belong to us so they move you out of the community or run you off and sell off your property. This is what uh, the author of Hebrew was saying. You accepted the confiscation. They didn't didn't mind. They didn't complain. It's okay. That's cause of me being a believer. He said, because you know. Now here's the reason. It's not that people just swallow it. Here's the reason. Because you know that you yourself had better and lasting possessions. Think about it for a moment. From a human perspective. If you have something that will help you for a year and one that will help you for 50 years, which one would you use? Of course, if you're an emotional person and short-sighted, you say, give it to me now. Well, you don't remember the next 49 years of your life, what's going to happen? But in this case, these are believers. They know, yes, if we lost everything, that's okay. Because it's not the end of everything. The whole eternity is coming. And we will be rewarded. And that's what matters most. And that's why they able to accept these things. So in other words, it's the perspective that we put on things that help us to see how we handle them. If you are short-sighted, give me what I call the, you know, the fast food mentality that we have. I want it quick, quick, quick. Then you just, you don't want to suffer for your faith or anything. You just, no, I don't want it. But if you recognize that it's the long haul, that's the issue, then no matter what comes your way, you endure it for the sake of what's coming ahead of you. Anyway, by the way though, the NIV is not the only version that left this combination untranslated in this Hebrew uh, term verse 34. So did the New Century version and the today's English version. Now, the little Greek really should read this way. And because that's way you should read literally, but they didn't translate it. That means both combinations ignored because they just said, "Well, there's no money just you sympathize." So that's the third way they handle the combination, not even translate it. A fourth way, the combination of the uh, Greek conjunction is translated, is to reflect what follows the combination is an emphatic explanation of a concept that is to show that. What goes on is an emphatic explanation. Thus, the combination is then translated for even, for even, in a passage where the Lord Jesus Christ corrected the response of the ten apostles, I mean, yeah, ten apostles, uh, regarding the request of James and John about being on a special position with him when he returns. In glory. Now, those two move through their mother and so on, you know. I mean, you all understand that a woman wants the best for the child. We all know that. Now, of course, unless there's some wrong with you as a woman, a mother, I don't see a woman who doesn't want, a mother that doesn't want the best for the child. So that's why this request, when, when Christ comes, let them be in this high position. <laughs> and Christ will rebuke them. Anyway, so the Lord wanted them to understand, though, that the greatest among them, though, is one that serves others. And not the way they are thinking at that point. Anyway, to emphasize this explanation, the Lord then spoke of his sacrifice on their behalf. And so the combination is translated for even. For even. That's the way it is used in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Mark chapter 10 verse 45 Mark chapter 10 verse 45 reads For even for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give himself as a ransom for many Now that's an emphatic explanation for even so it's not that he's explaining to them why they shouldn't be concerned with that but to be serving, because that will determine what you get later on, just serve, serve now so he's he's trying to say not even that but even me that's emphasis because he's emphasizing himself, the God man and that's why he says even me I came to serve now the emphatic explanation of the combining two Greek conjunctions may be translated something like for to be sure. For to be sure. So there's really no doubt then that the explanation is emphatic as it is translated where Apostle Paul gave an emphatic explanation of the death of Christ on the cross in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 4. 2nd Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 4. 2nd Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 4. It reads, For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness. Now, of course, this is... When they say Christ was crucified in weakness, it's a way to say he was human. He's is God-man, but here is his humanity. His human uh, being, a human being that is being emphasized for when he says uh, crucified in weakness. Yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him... Yet by God's power, we will live with him to serve you. So then, we have noted the various ways, at least in the NIV, that the combination of the Greek conjunctions that begin verse 14 of First Corinthians 12 is used. So our concern is how they are then used in our passage. We've seen the four, four ways it can be handled. So, how is it really used in a passage? Now, they are used for an emphatic explanation. That's why I made a statement. I could have just gone without giving around to all this. That's necessary, but you know that. So, this means then, that First uh, Corinthians 12 verse 4 10, should begin with an expression that reflects emphatic ex- explanation for what follows, instead of simply the word "now" that you have in the NIV. Or you, that's the same thing that you find in the revised edition of the New American Bible. Now, to me, at least, two English versions reflect the emphatic explanation. The apostle uh, intended, that is the two, at least the two English versions, one of them is the New English translation, and the other one, the New King James Version, that began verse uh, 14 with the expression, for in fact. That is the translated book, for in fact. Now it is the same interpretation that is reflected in the complete Jewish Bible, that began the verse with four, indeed, explanation, emphasis, four, explanation, indeed, emphasis, four, indeed. Anyway, we contend then that verse 14 that we are considering is an emphatic explanation of the fact that there is unity and diversity in the church of Christ, Although the apostle used the analogy of human body when he presented the first fact. Now, if the uh, the verse begins with four, as done in many of our English versions, one will not recognize that the verse is concerned not only with explanation, but with emphasis of what the apostle conveyed. Now, likewise... If the verse begins with indeed that reflects emphasis, one will not realize that what follows is an emphatic explanation of the fact that there is unity and diversity in the Church of Christ, although again the Apostle used the analogy of human body when he presented this first fact. Now, because of the emphatic explanation of the Apostle, we should recognize. As we have previously stated, the importance of diversity and unity in the church of Christ. Now that's, believers, to understand, you listen to the world, diversity is hated. That is a slap on God's face. You can't do that. If you know the Bible, you should never do that. Because God created it for a purpose. So when people talk about this, I mean, I know it, with people it's so popular and they talk about this. And the sad thing to me, it's like, Christian, go along with this. Because they don't know the Bible. And they think, oh yeah, it's great. Because it, whatever is political, correct, whatever, or incorrect, whichever people go. But you should not function that way. You're a believer. You function by, what does the Bible say about this? Now was it, 390 people, million people or so, or wherever they are, or a billion people on the planet say. It's what just the Bible say. And that's what we should go by. So this is what the apostle is emphasizing. That is, given an emphatic explanation of the importance of diversity in the church of Christ. And so, we should understand this, and should not ever think that diversity is a bad thing, in the body of Christ, for after all, there should be diversity of gifts for the functioning of the church of Christ. Now, if God did that, why would a human being think otherwise? Because we, I'm just warming up. We, we're going to get into some uncomfortable things that we're going to learn here, but we we'll do what the Bible says That way. Right? Now, we indicated, though, that the apostle use the analogy of human body to convey the unity and diversity in the church of Christ. Because of 1 Corinthians to a fourth thing that we're studying, reads, The body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now the word body is translated from a Greek word that we have considered previously, but for completeness. And, comp- uh, com- uh, and compression of the points so that people may uh, comprehend what we are advancing. We will review what we said about it. Now the Greek word is used both literally and figuratively. Now literally, it is used for the body of a human being or animal as an in instruction of the Lord Jesus to his disciples not to be afraid of those who can kill only the body but God who can kill the both body and soul as as stated in Matthew chapter 10 verse 28 Matthew Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, reads, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body. That's the physical body. They can, cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now the body may refer to a dead corpse or a dead body. As it is used to describe Jesus' explanation to the question of the disciples regarding the place of the judgment he spoke about that was coming. And this is where that word is used in Luke chapter seven, uh, 17 verse 47. Luke chapter 17 verse Thirty-seven. so after the Lord had talked about the things that are going to happen in the future when he brings judgment just before he comes and so forth and they asked where Lord and that's what we read here says, where Lord they asked he replied where there is a dead body there are the vultures or egos will gather. So here it refers to dead body. The Greek word soma refers to dead body. Now the body also may live to can refer to a living body as one that is involved in sexual immorality as stated in Romans chapter one verse twenty four. Romans chapter one verse twenty four. And hold on to Romans, um, the next passage is still in Romans. Romans 1, verse 24. Reads, Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. In other words, sexual immorality degrades a person's body. Now figuratively, Apostle Paul uses the word body to refer to the Christian community. Hence, he tells the believers in Rome that they form one body in Christ. In Romans chapter 12 verse 5. Romans, chapter 12, verse 5. It reads, So in Christ, we who are many, form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. Now to the Corinthians, though, the apostle indicated that they are the body of Christ. In 1 uh, Corinthians, chapter 12, where we are, look at verse 27. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27. It is now you are the body of Christ telling the Corinthians and so believers and each one of you is a part of it so the, that phrase the body of Christ here in 1 Corinthians twelve twenty-seven, refers to the church of Christ as Apostle Paul used it in his epistle to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 22 and 23 Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. reads, And God placed all things under his feet, and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church. Now look at that definition. Which is his body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now the Greek word that means body can also mean nature. The nature. As it is used in Colossians uh, to describe our sinful nature. In Colossians chapter 2 verse 11. Colossians. Chapter 2, verse 11. And hold on to Colossians. We're still going to pick another verse from the same chapter. Colossians two, eleven reads, In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with circumcision done by Christ. Here is the word that holds in sinful nature is the putting off of the body. But this refers to the sinful nature. Now, the word may mean the thing itself or simply the reality. The reality. Same word that means body can mean the reality. And that is the way it's used in the imagery of a body that casts a shadow as the word is used in the same Colossians where you are, chapter 2. Look at verse verse 17. Verse 17 reads, These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. See that clause? The reality, however, is found in Christ. If you just translate it literally from the Greek, this is the way it reads: And the body is of the Christ. That's all it says in the Greek. And the body is of the Christ. And that will make too much sense in English. But when it says the reality, then we know. Now the not that the Greek word may mean uh, physical, it can just mean something physical. As that is the way it's used to describe the needs of destitute believers that may go unmet, mate, as described in James chapter two, verse sixteen. James Chapter two, verse sixteen. James, chapter two, verse sixteen. It is if one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed. But it does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? Oh, if you have faith, you can do say, Yeah, I have faith, you know, go. Yeah, you can do something to help the person in face, you say, Yeah, uh, go and exercise faith or something like that. Anyway, the phrase here, that phrase, his physical needs, is literally from the Greek the things needful for the body. And the word also may refer to the entire person. The Greek word soma can refer to the entire person as it is used to describe the corrupting activity of the tongue. In, still in James chapter 3, look at verse 6. James. James chapter 3. Verse six. He said, "The tongue also is a fire. <laughs> I think most of you already know that, or should know that, that uh, how you can burn people with what you say. And some people will say it and don't even blink. They don't care who they hurt and what comes out of their mouth. Say so the the tongue also is a fire." A wall of evil among the parts of the body. Look at what it does. It corrupts the whole person. Now, when things come out of our mouths that are ugly, sinful, it shows that we are inwardly corrupt at that instant. Because, you know, somebody can say, No, I don't mean it. No, you do. Like I say, it comes from you. He says, says the whole cause of his life on fire, and himself set on fire by hell. Now the, the sentence we are interested here, though, is where he says, it corrupts the whole person. He corrupts, the, that's the term, corrupts the whole person. Now literally, this is way the Greek reads, defiling the whole body. And so your tongue is, how do you say defy your body? it's talking about defiling or corrupting your entire being because of what comes out of your mouth or what comes out of our mouth when we say things that we shouldn't say or which means we are thinking things we shouldn't think. Anyway, it is clear then that the corrupting influence of the tongue is on the entire person that includes the body and soul, not only the, merely the physical body. Now in our passage of 1 Corinthians 12 verse 14, the Greek word is used in the sense of course of the entire structure of an organism, both an animal or human being. So it simply means the word body in a literal sense. Now although the apostle use the Greek word in the literal sense of body, but because of the context of his explanation is the Church of Christ. Then we should recognize the word "body" here" as ultimately a reference to the body of Christ, that is, the church, since the apostle views the body of Christ as a church in the passage that I've already read, you don't need to write it down again, but in first Ephesians one verses 21 and 22. that's why he referred to that. Now that the body, though, in the analogy. Of the apostle in the sentence that we're studying, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 14. Look at the sentence we're studying. Again, it reads The body is not made up of one part, but of many. That refers to the church. That implies that the church is made up of, of many members of believers. It's not talking about physical body, it's just using it as a figure. Here to describe the Church of Christ, in that case, uh, the Church of Christ consists of several members. Now, the now the word "part" here used uh, is translated from a Greek word that literally refers to a part of the human body, so it means something like body, part, or a limb. As, as Apostle Paul also used it in his instruction. Uh, regarding believers to, of ensuring or ensuring that no physical part of their bodies is an instrument of sin as in Romans chapter 6 verse thirteen Romans chapter 6 verse thirteen Romans 6 verse 13 reads Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Now figuratively, the Greek word may mean member, that is a part of, uh, as a part member of a whole, as it is used to describe individual believer as part of the body of Christ or the church to whom another believer should not not lie to in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 25 Ephesians chapter 4 verse 25 It is Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Now, in our passage of First Corinthians twelve fourteen, the Greek word is used in the sense of body part. Body part. However, in application of the verse that we're considering, it refers then to the individual believers in Christ that. Constitute his body or the church, as the Apostle Paul already confirmed in the passage as cited at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27. So the various parts of our members form the body of Christ. That is what is then convinced in that sentence of 1 Corinthians 12, 14 that we are studying. He said, The body is not made up of one part, but of many. So, anyway, then. The first fact Apostle Paul conveyed to us in this passage that we're considering is that the church of Christ consists of several members that are different from each other in different ways. In different ways. That's the first fact. That you have to understand that. Accept that. Understand it. And embrace it. A second fact though. To help us understand the importance of unity and diversity in the body of Christ is that no believer can be separated from the body of Christ. And that point I'm going to label from now till the end of our study today. It's very important. That is, this fact is derived from the analogies the Apostle makes based on reference to four. Body parts. The first two body parts that are involved in the analogy are the foot and the hand as introduced in the first clause of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 15 that we're studying. Look at the first clause. It, it says, If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. Now the apostle states Something that is less likely to happen. Now we say this because of the conditional word if used in the verse where considering is translated from a Greek conjunction that may be used as a mark of condition of a reduced likelihood of occurrence of an activity. Uh, that is probably referenced. So it is Less likely for the foot to speak since it has a different function in the body that does not include communication. Now, the foot is used for walking, we know, although it may be used in the imagery of defeat of someone or subduing someone where the defeat or the one defeated lies under the feet of the conqueror, as it is used for the Uh, conquest of God's enemies by Jesus Christ before handing over the reign to God the Father that we're going to come by by the grace of God at the right time in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 25 1 Corinthians 15 verse 25 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 25 It is reads, for he must reign, that's Jesus Christ, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So that's a, simple, a, 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 a symbol here of total defeat of all the enemies. Now that aside then, the foot does not have the function of speaking. That is the reason we stated that the apostle in his analogy use something that is less likely to occur. The thing that could uh, remotely occur is for the foot to utter what is stated in the uh, clause of 1 Corinthians 2 15 again it says because I am not a hand I do not belong to the body now that sentence I'm not a hand is not merely to convey that one part of the body is not another Bet, to refer to different function that is attributed to the hand. Now the word hand here is translated from a Greek word that no doubt refers to the hand or any uh, relevant portion of the hand, including, for example, the fingers. This is the reason our Greek word, that means hand, is translated finger as the place ring is placed. On a person, as in the parable of the compassionate father, that is more often known as the prodigal son. Or the parable of the prodigal son. But the father instructed for the ring to be placed on his finger when he got back uh, to his senses, of course. In Luke chapter 15 verse 22. Luke, chapter 15, verse 22. Luke, chapter 15, verse 22 reads, "But the father said to to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Now that phrase, put a ring on his finger... Literally, the Greek says, ring on his hand. Ring on his hand. But since ring is worn on a finger, the appropriate meaning then of a Greek word in the English is simply not hand but finger. Now, the Greek word may also mean wrist. Wrist. As a place, a handcuff or chains are placed on someone arrested. As that's the way the word was used uh, to describe the location, uh, a fell off of Peter when an angel released him from jail, as we read in Acts chapter 12, verse 7. We're looking at the clock. It's time for break. After break, we'll look at it.